Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk with the author, one of the authors of Why Parties Matter, Political Competition and Democracy in the American South. The book is published by University of Chicago Press, and the authors are John Aldris and John Griffin. I have the pleasure to talk with John Griffin today. John, how are you doing? Uh, I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Heath. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing this really interesting book. Uh, maybe you could just share a little bit about yourself and also introduce your co-author. Sure. Uh, just briefly. So um, I'm on the faculty in the Department of uh, Political Science at the University of Colorado uh, Boulder. Um, I uh, typically study the relationship between the opinions of the public and the decisions that government officials make and when those line up well and when those don't line up so well and um, what we typically call democratic representation. Uh, And my um, co-author was my actually my PhD advisor when I was a graduate student at Duke some many years ago. Uh, His name's John Aldrich and he is a uh, a chaired faculty member um, at Duke University with a um, a specialty in the study of uh, political parties. Yeah, who among us cannot claim to have cited John Aldrich at least one time in our career? I think that's probably a near universal, regardless of your of your field. So it's a it's a pleasure to um, to have read the book that the two of you have written. Now, your your book is fundamentally about whether political parties are necessary for democracy, and and this is much of the argument that you build in the book. I wonder before we get to your argument, if you would sketch out briefly the opposing argument. Um, that is, uh, that democracies do not necessarily need political parties to function, uh, then we can get to your specific argument in the book. To, um, not to wordsmith too much, but um, the statement or characterization of our claim as political parties as being necessary for democracy is, we don't quite go that far, actually. Um, we, we argue that um, a healthy system of political parties, which we can dig into a little bit, um, is sufficient uh, for an effective democratic politics because a healthy system of political parties will lead to regularly competitive elections. So it's sort of a, a two-step argument. Healthy system of parties is sufficient for um, regularly competitive elections and regularly competitive elections are what really spurs all the benefits um, that democracy uh, accrues. And that's an important distinction for us um, in that we admit to the possibility that some, we might be able to arrive at regularly competitive elections through some other mechanism. In other words, uh, it's not that we think that parties are the only way to get there, but the reason that we say that political parties or a healthy system of parties is a sufficient a precursor to regularly competitive elections is that um, we, we as a society, um, I guess in the United States and, and 
I guess we would say even globally, have not come up with an alternative to parties um, that is sufficiently um, successful at producing regularly competitive elections. Um, and I, I don't, again, I don't mean to, to nitpick, but it's actually an important um, distinction for us. So, so we admit to that theoretical possibility, but, but basically that we as, as crafters of, of governments have not uh, derived any alternative to parties that is able to succeed in the ways that political parties um, can. Uh, I mean, an alternative to parties, um, you could imagine, I guess, some sort of thriving system of interest groups. So one of the arguments that some political scientists have made are, is that um, political parties and interest groups are, are sort of rising and um, rise uh, and fall in opposite uh, oscillations. Um, that when political parties are strong, interest groups are weak and, and vice versa. That's <clears throat> theoretically possible, um, but we, we could talk about ways in which um, perhaps theoretically um, interest organizations can't or usually don't perform all the functions that, that parties f- perform and that we need um, in order to have regularly competitive elections, not least of which being that interest groups actually don't field candidates for office <laughs> in the same way that, that parties do. Um, so that would, you know, that would be maybe um, one, one rival argument um, to, to ours. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I guess I'll stop there. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the point you just made um, is gets to one of the important definitions that you offer in the book, which is, is how you define a major political party and do this in chapter two of the book. Um, so well, what is your definition of a major political party and maybe how is it different from others or why is it, why is it important to, to think about that as, as uh, uh, you build your argument in the book? Well, our definition, um, to, to be responsive to your question, is that a major political party um, is a party that is able to uh, field candidates for the wide variety of offices that are uh, being contested. Um, and uh, that's, um, uh, that's, I guess, important for us just in the sense of trying to, um, I guess, at the first stage, trying to move from um, a system of, uh, in which there's only a single political party that is dominant uh, to a system where you have um, uh, at least two parties. And that's a critical step for us. We're not quite so interested in, in the move from two to three to four to five parties. For us, <clears throat> once you move from a single dominant party, call it a major party, and, uh, t- uh, such as we had in the American South for, for much of the nation's history, to having um, two major parties, that's the critical move or step for us in terms of, of producing um, a sufficient level of competition as sort of the name or the definition of a major party implies um, that would then produce all the fruits of democracy, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, they, as you, as you just say, the, this book is primarily about the South and about party development, the way the parties have uh, functioned in the South. And um, you know, throughout the much of the book that the, the South differs from the North in so many ways, but for your purpose, the South matters uh, because it has these periods of either, no party at all, or weakly developed parties more generally. Um, what do you mean by this exactly? What is what is the contention about the peculiar nature of, of uh, party politics in the South? 
Uh, well, there are certainly um, periods and um, locations in the nation's history where other regions have had uh, dominant parties. You could you know, think of um, sort of uh, old style Republicans in the Northeast, for example. And so it's not necessarily the case that a project like ours had to focus um, on on the South. Uh, you know, I guess the South stands out um, in at least a couple ways. One is that um, the, I guess the the sheer dominance of of uh, the Democratic uh, Party in the South uh, in the um, in the 1900s um, uh, and 1800s, for that matter. Um, uh, really outstrips the dominance of, of parties in other regions. And, and then actually the second reason is related to the first, which is the reason that the, the Democrats were so dominant in the South was because there were um, legal barriers to uh, full electoral participation, uh, primarily of um, African-Americans, but also some poor whites, which artificially constrained uh, the electorate um, such that there was greater, I guess, consensus among those who were eligible to participate and thus in some ways um, less of a natural demand for two different parties um, and also uh, sort of overt intimidation and violence, which led to uh, an inability to develop a, a second major party. You study four specific periods in the book. Uh, I wonder if you could briefly talk about these four and and uh, and why these four. Well, I guess I'll name them first and then maybe briefly explain why. So we we, we look at uh, what we call the Jacksonia Jacksonian era when the Democratic and Whig parties competed um, roughly from eighteen twenty eight to eighteen forty eight or so when the Whig party. Um, collapsed. Uh, we look. Uh, 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 we we don't completely skip over the Civil War, but we the second area in which we go more deeply is after Reconstruction. Um, again, in the South, um, looking at the late eighteen uh, hundreds, uh, we um, discuss briefly the Jim Crow period in the South uh, of the um, first. Um, several decades in the, um, in the 1900s. And then, um, we go uh, quite deeply, um, into the period after, uh, world war two and up to the present day. And we, <clears throat> even though we connect all those periods, we, we focus on those periods because they were eras in which, um, a second party, uh, a second major party in the South, was at least attempted <laughs> and in the in the Jacksonian period and in the the period after reconstruction um, of course um, the attempts to to build a s- sustained Whig party and then Republican party uh, were uh, failed um, for reasons that were essentially not of a natural or competitive nature but because um, of the Civil War in the first instance, and because of um, Southern uh, redemption and the exclusion of uh, blacks from the electorate um, in Reconstruction, and then really the comparative 
to those two instances is the modern period in which, of course, really um, beginning in about 1980, but maybe coming to some fruition um, in 1994, the Republican Party truly became an alternative to the Democratic Party in the South. And so I guess to sum all of that up, we look at these periods um, sort of together as an example of how if you allow, uh, if you permit all voters to participate in elections, there, there seems to us to be a natural tendency for an alternative party or a second major party to emerge to the first, um, it, unless you just force it to not happen by seceding from the union or excluding you know, parts of the electorate. And that once, once you know, barriers to participation are removed, there, I guess to put it in its most strong terms, uh, a one-party dominant system is almost impossible uh, to sustain. Now, later in the book, uh, you um, analyze some quantitative data and you use what you describe as swing ratios to, to analyze electoral competition. I wonder if you could just describe what, what this swing ratio is and uh, what is using it. Tell us about this larger argument that you're making about better understanding party politics in the South. Well, the swing ratios are... An, an example or um, a metric that sh- tells us as um, a party gains more votes, uh, does it gain more seats? Um, and we'd like there to be a fairly good correspondence between those two things for us, for a political system to be responsive to the preferences of the electorate. In a system where there's a lag or, or sort of a sluggish relationship between um the way that people vote and the seats uh, and how seats are allocated, we we would say that that system isn't so is, is sluggish to you know sluggishly responsive to voters and in a way that isn't terribly um, democratic and and that that swing ratio is going to depend on essentially how votes get uh, counted up you know through various districting processes and and the like. So um, it's it's one. It's one metric that, that tells us whether um, whether a system uh, or whether the composition of those that are going to hold political offices is 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 representative of the preferences of the electorate. And what do you find? You you found a lot of things related to this, but I wonder if you could maybe describe a couple things or, or one significant thing that that you're able to demonstrate about the theoretical argument that you make with the empirics. Right. So I'll leave it to your readers to identify exactly the figure that we show this, but the swing rate ratio is, or I say readers, I think listeners. So, um, so the swing ratio is one example of many in which we show that the conditions are, or, you know, political responsiveness in the South um, has become on par with that in the North. And so uh, we, we look at other things as well, essentially the sort of the, the relationship between how uh, liberal or conservative districts are and how liberal or conservative their elected officials vote is another. But whether you look at, at, at the, the metric I just described or, or look at swing ratios, <clears throat> what you observe is that the South was, was laggard for basically as far back as we can go in, in terms of looking at these measures, but that essentially over the last uh, 40 years or so, the South has come to look just like the rest of the United States. 
Now, now, I think we would file this in the category of burying the lead. Uh, you write at the end of the book, uh, in our view, Southern politics as a field of inquiry is at its end. Um, what do you mean by this? Because it relates to the point that you just made. Um, and do you mean that those that study politics are out of a job or is the contention here uh, more nuanced as, as I, I imagine it is. So, so what did you mean by that kind of bold statement? There has been a, a subfield in the discipline that studies Southern politics because the, the politics of the South have been so unique, um, you know, to put it, I guess, most strongly, the South has looks in some ways a more like an authoritarian uh, country than, than like some sort of democratic um, region of the United States. Um, so, you know, our claim that the study of Southern politics has come to an end is really based on the the convergence of these measures that I was talking about. And it's not just measures of democratic responsiveness or swing ratios. What we show is that um, by a number of, uh, I guess, sort of democratic performance measures, um, <clears throat> things like household income and educational attainment, family size um, and the like, that, that the South used to look more like a developing country if we were, say, a, like comparative students of par- comparative politics. Um, and, and today, uh, while it, the South hasn't converged um, but, uh, on every measure with the North uh, or the non-South, uh, on some measures, it, it, it has completely converged. And on others, it's become a lot more like the North. So... So yeah, there may be ways uh, that the South's politics may still have some unique qualities, but in the most important ways, whether the whether politics is responsive to citizens and whether government can provide the things that it's supposed to provide to citizens, um, the South is much, much more like the non-South today. Yeah, the, uh, the book is, is so very interesting. Uh, again, the title, Why Parties Matter, Political Competition and Democracy in the American South. Uh, you've been hearing from John Griffin, who is the co-author, along with John Aldrich, of this University of Chicago book out and, and available to be uh, purchased and read. John, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me.